pop culture theologians. It's been a couple of years, a year maybe, or a few months. It depends on what timeline you are currently matriculating yourself in. Um, but it's so great to have you with here because we're back with our new season and we're back with the season that started it all, Westworld, if you've been following us for a little while. But we're so glad you're here. Um, quick spoiler alert, Marcy will be with us next week. But nevertheless, we have our Shiro, my Shiro. Uh, Kirsten Gertie's here with us. Hi, Kirsten. Hello. How are How's you? How's it going? You know, the downfall of democracy, you know, everyone's individual rights are either been chopped away or on the chopping block or on the future chopping blocks. I mean, what about you? I mean, samesies. Yeah, it's been a really hard month. Although, I don't know if you've been watching the hearings that have been taking place. There's a little bit of a I wouldn't call it hope, but there's a glimmer of something. It's adjacent, maybe, that I've seen some movement among, I think, people that I know that are or have been Trump supporters in the past to have their minds changed. But yeah, uh, none of that particularly matters when the Supreme Court can just decide that you don't have the right to privacy or the right to your own body. And that's really disheartening because because they also decided that gerrymandering is totally fine. And totally, therefore... it's totally fine. It's the it's the new Pepsi. Like yeah. I mean, you know, like we just got to get with it and start looking at dual citizenship applications at this point. I mean, yeah. So there's. I just feel like I I. Don't know where you stand on this, but I've been sort of uh, disillusioned for a while with the everyone get out and vote because I already do that. And everybody I know already does that. And we did that. And here we are. So Yeah. Voting isn't enough when they can take it all away from you. Exactly. And it's not enough when they've gerrymandered everything. So it doesn't matter. You have to have such a huge margin to get anywhere. Anyway, yeah. so it's depressing. It's all depressing. So like life is like great. It's totally wonderful. Like life is great. Like there's great television. Yeah. You know, Mar Marvel. This is what they've given us. The golden age of television has satiated us. And that's why we're not out in the streets. Yeah. I mean, you know, Marvel is now entering DC territory with their phase four nonsense. I'm, you know, more on that later. Yes. I have peripherally watched some things, but not everything. So yeah, now it's now it's just one of those things where it's like every character has to team up, and I'm just like, come on, girl. Can't we just get one a hero by themselves? Yeah, right. But nevertheless, we're here to talk about all things pop culture, all things theology and religion, and the stuff in between here or there. But with our show Westworld, which you were there at with us at the beginning, I was. That was. I feel like that was forever ago. I mean, it was like a whole pandemic ago. Um, yeah, so, it, yeah, it really it, was two years between each season. I think I don't know about you, but I have to go back and kind of like revisit, read some recaps. I rewatched a few episodes from earlier seasons just to kind of like remember because I forgot. And I don't feel like I mean, I I love watching this. It's fine. I'm I'm on it. I'm a finisher. Like I I will watch this to completion. Okay, but 
I I don't know that that's the best decision on the part of the writers to have yeah. it two years between every season. On well, a se- global on a, on pandemic. A show that's so compli- well, okay, but it was two years before. Was like True. The first season was like 2016. I feel like the show's like, we're so smart and we're going to get in on that. But like, we're so smart. We know you smarties will like stick with us. They're not wrong. Yeah, I mean, they're not wrong. wrong. Funny fact. I was actually at your wedding um, when we started yes. the Engage Gaze, and then we didn't have a, a podcast yet, Marcy and I, but I remember we used to write recaps at, on this in written form, and you partook. You did not partake in the wedding weekend. I'm still mad at you for that. I mean, geez, what else did you have going on that weekend? That was so important, but this show really started it all for us. Yeah, and I think you you and Marcy especially have done such a wonderful job kind of unpacking pop culture things and making it contextualizing it within um you know the religious themes the philosophical themes and so I I know as a fan of the show of your podcast and as of your um just of the website like I have read your stuff and I'm always like oh yeah I didn't see that or those are connections I haven't made so I am thrilled that you let me be a part of this even in a small way you're an honorary pop culture theologian till the till the end of whatever society we still live in at that time. <laughs> till the collapse of everything. Till the collapse. I'm going to call it the great collapse. Um, but but, you know, we're here. It's really exciting. I'm loving the show um, for many of the fans that know we are doing. This is our brand new season. We're doing Westworld. This show will end. And then guess what? Dun, dun, dun. You thought Game of Thrones was over. It's not, it's coming back because they didn't torture us enough. And I did get COVID for those listeners that followed us all throughout the pandemic. I finally got it after many years. I was thinking I was the cure for a long time um, because I should have gotten it, but I didn't, but all okay. Um, But uh, I rewatched Game of Thrones from beginning to end because why not torment myself more while I'm, you know, suffering. Um, And let me say my original opinion stands um, and they did Danny dirty. And I'm still angry to all of our faithful listeners. And I did read an article that said George R. R. Martin, um, when he writes it from beyond the grave, because there's no way he'll ever finish this book in the time that society does not collapse or the end and a black star pull, a black uh, hole pulls us all in. But uh, I'm glad he said that the, the book won't end just like the show did. And that gave me a little hope, but hope is something I'm just clinging on to now. So do we think George R. R. Martin has ADHD? I think he's actually a host. I think he's a host. I honestly think he's like a host. And this is just the perpetual cycle of torment that he puts us all in. I was going to say, because like if if he had ADHD, then maybe the like terrible ending of the show and how badly fans reacted to it would be the crisis moment for him to actually finish the last book. There's a moment in the last season. Okay. All, we're going to go through this all when we do the the fire and blood or blood and fire, dragons, fire, whatever it's fucking, whatever it's called, spoiler alert. Um, but uh, I, I will say there's a moment in the show where it just like goes from like, okay, this is a good final season. Like, I think it's the, the long night. That's like the really last episode where it's quality. There's commentary in between. Don't get me wrong. But uh, like, then it just goes like to shit. Right. And I really tried, but nevertheless, we don't need to try in Westworld because it forces you to think. So, you know, we've got a lot to talk about. So today we're going to cover episodes one and two 
Um, and we're really going to get into it. So Kirsten, are you ready to talk all things Westworld? I am ready. Are you a host? I guess you'll have to find out. I guess we'll have to find out. All right, everyone. We're going to talk about episode one of Westworld season four, The Auguraries. Okay, so we're going to go through um, a little bit of a recap of the episode. Um, If you've watched the show, if you know the show, we're going to spoil shit. So if you haven't watched it, I guess go back and watch all uh, seasons one, two, and three. They're good. One season here or there. Um, But, you know, we're just be ready. So perpetual spoiler alert for everything we're about to say. Um, And we are covering episode one and two. So we will pause before episode two. So, you know, but just get ready. So the show opens, we see William um, and it really, he's, he's out there at the Hoover Dam. And I really had a great moment where I was like, Oh, I love the Hoover Dam. Water levels are dangerously low. Climate change is real. Um, but Again, coll- collapse of society, collapse Whatever. of society, common theme. Um, but he's really like out there to buy something. And he really says something that you have to pay attention to. And I'm now a person that watches shows with captions because I can't hear without my captions as the meme on Instagram says, but eight years ago, a certain someone stole something of his that he wants back. So really important context point. It's been eight years since season three and season four. So shit's gone down. Um, But ultimately we all kind of know what happened when someone stole something from him. Um, And then, you know, when this businessman that he's trying to tell this to says, this ain't for sale, girl. Um, He delivers this one liner that stuck with me. And I think sticks with all of us because I know Kirsten, you talk about capitalism all the time, Um, but this is America. Everything's for sale and nothing's ring more true. What'd you think of that? I mean, I kind of felt that coming when the guy said it's not for sale. I'm like, cause that's the, the clear answer. And yeah, I, with you, I'm with you. Like that line was just like, yep, that's, I mean, it's true in Westworld. It's true here. I mean, it's just, it's truly an incredible line because the show does fancify itself on like this corporatization of like what America is and the power of America. And we see that kind of over governance over all these people and that everything can buy. You can buy pleasure, you can buy experiences, you can buy all these things. And for this guy to say, um, you can buy politicians, politicians, uh, both in the real world and the West world world. Um, you know, uh, <laughs> um, there's there's a lot going on. And, you know, uh, it really stuck on me um, because if you're a fan of Jeffrey Wright, he was in a, a, an amazing HBO adaptation called Angels in America, where they they say a line very similar. And I believe he actually says it in in the show as well. So um, this this definitely rings true. So but you know, the guy refuses and uh, despite William's threats, whatever those are, and he goes home to a beautiful home, by the way, in Las Vegas. Um, and he finds a horde of buzzing flies, gross, nope. in his walk-in nope. closet. Nope. Do you hate, I hate flies. I hate all things buzzing. So yeah, no, I saw that and I was like, I noped out. I was like, nope, can't, I can't nope. do it. Nope. I was watching it at night and I was like, Ugh, this is gross. Uh, but now I saw a fly today and I was like, uh Oh, um, I was like, is Delos after me? Um, but he sees this and then it goes blank and he wakes up in a daze and he walks to the office. And then all of a sudden he just stabs his colleagues to the death, seemingly out of his own uh, volition. He just does it. Right. Um, and then 
uh, lo and behold, like William said, you know, I'll see you tomorrow and you're going to hand over everything to me for free. Even he could have bought it and sold it to him, but he didn't. Um, and he gives him everything William wants. And he asks, is my work done? And William says, yes, it is. Um, and he can rest now. And the guy slits his own throat and William walks away ominously and cue grand opening, cue show opening. I mean, what a, what a way to just welcome us back to this fucked up world. Yeah, I, the flies, I mean, I thought it was a really great opening, but the flies, I was like, no, I can't do it. And it's clear that the flies have something to do with control. I just couldn't piece it together. But as we will see as the episode unfolds, how that happens, it's gross. It's, yeah, I hate flies. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right, who do we meet next after the opening? So then it fades to black and we open on Christina slash Dolores. So this is the, it's Dolores, but she's a brunette. So she's no longer blonde, um, but she's brunette. And I am name, a blonde now. I know. Yes. You've switched roles. Yes. I, so, I, I am Dolores. Yeah. yeah. I believe that. Also, Dolores Evan Rachel Wood Wyatt. is, yes, right? Evan Rachel Wood is just like stunning in everything, by the way. She is. And I think she does a really good job in this, playing it very different, that she's not playing Dolores from season one, and she's not playing the Dolores that gained consciousness or any of the, you know, like Wyatt or any of the other Doloreses, but she is playing a new person which I find really interesting um and still I though I well this may be saying too much too early but I do think there is still obviously parts of Dolores in her that you can see but um yeah I think she we see her waking up in bed and it kind of mimics that season one where you kind of follow her on her daily routine um and she's laying in a bed and she wakes up, you see her eyes open, and then she gets up, and you see this happen a few times during this episode, and it's the same, basically, same morning routine every time. Um, of course, there's an easel by her bed, which is, again, I think one of the hallmarks that it is the Dolores we know. It's just, she's in there somewhere. Talk um, about a great bedroom, too. Like, do you yeah. see the bed zips up? Like, the, it's like, know, a it's zip. like, it's a Murphy bed, but, like, a really nice Murphy bed. Yeah. And I really liked whatever I was actually every time I watched the episode twice and I, every time I saw her, like, I don't know if it was a button she pushed or something she did to the window. Cause it like was a automatic frost to kind of like black out. And then until, instead of having actual blinds that you pull down or like shades or whatever, it's, uh, it's automatic. And I was like, that's oh. money. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. money in the future. Apparently. Yeah. It's just a common thing for apartments in the future. If only. And she lives if right only. off the High Line in New York. Which is I know, like, which is, a, as we all know. Super affordable. Super, a super affordable place to live. Like yes. anyone can live there, right? Totally. Yeah. Um, but she gets ready for the day and then we see her go out into the main living area and we see that she has a roommate who, of course, is played by none other than Ariana DeBose. We, we stand, we love, we, yes. we icon. Yes. Um, and the roommate comes out and is like wearing white. So the roommate is wearing all white and holds up two pairs of shoes, white and black and asks um, 
well, I call her Tina Loris. Um, she asked Tina Loris, like, what is, what should, which shoe should you wear? And, and Tina Loris points to the white shoes. Um, they're apparently having some kind of event after work. So um, basically the Dolores slash Christina character says either one would look great, but she's forced into making a decision. And what Ariana DeBose's character says is pick a side, Chrissy. Um, so I feel like there's obviously something happening with the roommate. I don't know what you think, John. Um, it seems pretty clear from the very introduction of the roommate whose name I can't remember right now. Do you remember the roommate's name? Oh my God. No, I can't remember off the top of my head, but I, I'm going to yeah. find out. Okay. Cause all I'm thinking is like Ariana DeBose, Ariana DeBose. Uh, so yeah, I, I think there's something up there. I don't know what it is, but you know, we will find out. I'm wondering if she's a host. I have lots of thoughts about who she is, what she's doing. You know, it's, it's definitely, uh, an interesting uh, choice. I I don't know. I want to know like when she filmed this role because I feel like it's pre West Side Story or like maybe post because she's getting like all the love now. And I feel like it's pre West Side Story because it was filmed kind of during the pandemic. Um, I say during, um, right? Because we're still there. Um, but ultimately uh, it's going to be fairly interesting because there's a little bit that she kind of nuances to in a way that I think she's there for a specific reason but more on that and then we come into I think your favorite character my favorite character Maeve so Maeve we love I mean Tandy Newton is my everything um and ultimately um what we have is she's meditating and I'm just like girl we all we're with you like she went on that yoga retreat in the high mountains and she's in a snow covered cabin in the woods and she's just meditating, minding her own beeswax. Um, and she's having flashbacks, of course. Um, and her daughter, Caleb, um, from last season, bleeding out, um, general destruction. And she doesn't just bust her radio. She blows up the whole mountain's t- power. And so um, I did not learn that in yoga. Um, so I'm still working to get to that level of enlightenment. I feel that might be like a Scientology six or seven um, to be able to do all that. But ultimately, uh, we see her really connect with the goddess and, and, and make sure she's okay. But I, I was like, I'm like, Maeve, you know, I'm really happy you found some sort of peace, but you can definitely tell she's been on the run. I really think it's because she was able to get away from all the people. That's the one thing that I found really relatable. I'm like, yeah, she's off the grid. She doesn't really talk to people. They all, she, all the toxic was, men. <laughs> yes. Right. All, they were all her problem. Uh, leaving her alone so that she can just live her life. And that's how you get to the Scientology six. Yeah. And that's are able to channel all the electricity or the force or whatever through, through and- her to, to be basically an EMP to be yeah exactly a human emp and remember if you watched last season the thing about mave is she's this she's just gone beyond what all the hosts could do in terms of recognition of herself and you know consciousness able to and, control the other she can control technology so yeah yeah i i actually I'm, need her don't we all uh i think it's interesting that dolores as powerful as dolores became was never able to do that yeah I think it's also because, you know, like Dolores in a way was always, I don't know. I feel like Maeve pushed herself forward and I always felt like Dolores was holding on to pieces of the past, but 
that's neither here nor there. I really want to know what Maeve would be like in like in a Zoom meeting. Like, do you think the Zoom would just be like completely screwed up? I think it would be wavy, wavy. and it would cut cut in and out, and you would see the poor connection thing that always happens. You're Your muted. connection is unstable. You're muted, right? You're muted. Yeah. Um, so we meet Maeve blows up her whole town's power grid. She does a little bit more yoga, and then who do we meet? Then we get to see Caleb. So apparently he doesn't bleed out on the side of whatever cliff that Maeve was on with him um, after they blew up the remnants of Rehoboam or whatever it was they did. Um, Instead, the guy who started the revolution is basically working construction. So it seems that he's back kind of where we, where he was when we first met him, but we do learn he actually has a wifey and a cute, adorable seven-year-old daughter and has so influenced this daughter that she now has the number one hobby of shooting cans in the yard. And it does seem, and his wife makes reference to the fact that Caleb seems to be dealing with some PTSD from the war. And this is where we learn that in the previous seven years leading up to the moment that we have kind of entered in here in season four, that there was this war fought after the events of season three. Yeah. Did you, did you kind of catch what the the war was about? I, I, I want to say it's about the remnants of the, of season three, kind of like people um, remember when people realized that their futures were no longer um, predestined and determined, and it was really back on them. Um, and they had their own personal choice and freedom back. Um, the war was also about people not wanting that. They didn't want to know what was not determined and what was because they were living in this ignorance, right? You know, what is it? The uh, What's it in Latin? You probably know better. Tabula rasa or what is it? Tabula rasa. Tabula rasa, right? Mm-hmm. And so people, you know, we all go through life. I mean, I don't know personally. Um, if someone were to tell me in 10 years where I would be, if I would maybe want to know. Um, but I don't know. There's like this calming factor about it, but the way in which it was being controlled for capitalism's sake, by the way in which the company Delos was trying to profit off of it, it really just throws kind of like this whole, you know, motion into what I think French philosophers who, you know, were thinking about this stuff way back when would be like, wait, what? There's a global corporation that could control all this stuff? I had no idea, you know? And so I think that ultimately it's probably about the war um, and where people ended up on both sides. And I think we kind of see the winners and the losers a little bit here. I guess that's what I, I wanted a little bit more information and maybe we'll get it more is that it was unclear to me whether it was like, you know, like you said, like just your average person on either side of this, like I want to know versus I don't want to know, or whether there was more of an organized fight, like the corporations and the military kind of being on the same side because they're the ones with power, but there was just a larger uprising. Cause that's kind of what it was in season three is that you had the riots of just your average person finally being told, hey, you're actually being controlled in what is essentially a technocracy that is owned by companies. um, And that was unacceptable. And so I don't, that's what was unclear to me is maybe I just missed it. Um, Whether it was like everyone against everyone, like you were on a side or whether it was like the people who had power 
um, <laughs> corporations, et cetera, were fighting against the average person. I don't know. But I mean, we look at what Meta is doing on Facebook and this like new version of Second Life that I know we've spoken about in the past with people living online, but you know, the VR aspect. I mean, we look at Facebook and these social media companies also currently controlling our lives here and how we do all these things. And while really where people are thinking, I mean, they guess our algorithms, they know exactly when Pride Month is here and when to hit me at my lowest for shopping purposes. Um, but ultimately, we think about the larger issues, political discourse, personal discourse, and what that even means to ourselves and how we shape ourselves. So the West world world is so close to our real world, which is why I think I love this show so much. Yeah, I, I do too. And I kind of like that they didn't spend the time on the war. Like that's not the important piece of the story. The piece important piece of the story was sort of ramping up to it, like liberation and freedom. And here we see this post war world in which again, Caleb is dealing with PTSD and some of that seems to be rubbing off on his daughter. Um, who seems to have some of the same paranoia that Caleb has. And it's interesting to see that in this post-world world where everyone knew that this company or a few companies had bought and sold everyone's data and were basically determining everyone's lives, that they've still retained the level of dependence on technology that they have. And that in that respect, I don't know what's changed. So it sounds like they're all like in a way I want to say because of how um, and we're kind of going to get into it. Episode two rolls out. I want to say the hosts or like Delos as a company like lost in a way. Like I want to say there was some sort of winner and loser because I feel like if Caleb and Maeve's side lost, like they wouldn't be in season four, you know? And, and I think that these corporations were either like checked by government, which is, spoiler alert to season two um and people kind of were like oh okay they're not storming the capital anymore they're not out there right wink wink nod nod um but ultimately i th i think you're right right because we're trying to understand really what this world is i'm also really happy with it because we don't i don't need that eight-year period in a way it also presents me a lot of great like um, narrative that they can use to prove their point later on as long as they do it in the right way or maybe a Caleb spinoff called the Caleb Wars a Westworld story you know I'm pitching it here and now if you're listening writers but that's it yeah no I think that the you're right that if Caleb and Maeve's side had lost that they wouldn't be here I do think that with the data being transferred um it, it was gone, right? And so if without the data to make money on in the way that they had before, there is less um, leverage there. And additionally, I think that there's also this, um, like a, in terms of them not showing the war, um, we can kind of, uh, there's a piece there where you can kind of fill in with your own imagination um, and I think that what is more interesting and what Westworld has always, while they do have really great action scenes, I think what Westworld has always more focused on, been focused on was not the action, but on character development. And this season really, I think, is kind of a return to that character development in a way that really escalates the significance or the weight of the story that they're trying to tell.
it's been the reaction to the event more so than it's been the actual action itself. I feel like the action itself gets super boring. You know, after a while, it's like, okay, hosts that have unlimited power murdering each other. What a, what a novel concept. And also I think like Westworld shut down. So they call it the Westworld massacre and Westworld doesn't exist. I use air quotes and we'll see to what degree that actually is true. But um, that's, like at least in the seven years of that war period, um, Westworld wasn't in operation. And so, you know, there's, uh, I guess people had other things to do than visit Westworld, but I feel, I feel like that the, in my imagination, right. The government would came in and was like, well, we shut down Westworld. So we solved it. It's done. Right. Yeah. Did Everything's you- fine. Did you catch in season two, I mean, in, in episode two of season four, the, the we'll talk about it and maybe I don't want to spoil this right away, but this we're talking about this gap in between and things left unsaid. Did you hear when William said the words, we survived this, this, but he also said pandemic? Yes. Okay, great. We'll talk about that. But I feel like this show's trying to like implement something within this eight year time period. So- yeah. We get back, we, we leave Caleb and his daughter, who's, a, you know, trying to be a great shot, um, you know, and we come back on Maeve and her, her little power outage caused quite the commotion, but um, unbeknownst to nobody that wasn't paying attention, um, a band of bad guys shows up at her door. Um, she's not there. She's out buying more wine. Good for her. Um, and uh, the storekeeper says, I just sent people up to your house. And she's like, ooh, I don't have any friends. Um, and so she knows what's going on. I don't on. like people. I don't like people. Maeve is all of us. Hashtag Maeve is us. Um, needs to start trending right now. Um, but as usual, she's a badass and she kills all of these people. If you recognize um, one of the hosts, he was in previous seasons um, and the jig is up for her and her nice little mountain retreat. And she has to leave because she knows um, William, spoiler alert, sent these people after her because he's been looking for her for quite some time. Um, and then we go back to uh, Tina Loris. What are we going to call her? I don't know. There's not Tina Loris is what I called her in you know my own head, but in the show, her they call her Chrissy. But I don't know that there's a really great She's not a Chrissy to me. Yeah. And her roommate's name is Maya. Maya. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, one of the things that happens um, early in the show, uh, like the first time we see Tina Loris, is that she gets this call from an unknown caller. And on this clear phone that just looks like a piece of plastic I could throw on the ground and break, you see that there's just this list of, unknown caller, unknown caller, unknown caller. And so when it opens on Tina Loris again, we see that um, she is going to meet, um, like she is on her way home from what is essentially a bad date. And been there. She, yes. Haven't we all? Uh, she runs into this guy cause she's not really paying attention. And his name is Peter. He is the person who's been calling. He, basically insists that she is ruining several people's lives, his included, and basically is trying to kill her, tries to slice her throat open, but misses her and instead slashes her arm. And so we see that there's a cut on her arm and there's blood. And as she's kind of struggling to get away, um, 
there's some person that we can't see who the face is, but it seems to be a masculine figure comes in and kind of pulls him, Peter, off of her and then disappears into the night. And she basically gets inside of her apartment building and the next time we see her is the next morning. So she gets up. also has a retina scan, by the way, to get in. I mean, that's security. I, I, yeah, I can't say that's a bad idea until someone wants to carve out your eye in order to get into your building. That part. Um, but yeah, so she wakes up the next morning and of course is on the same loop. Like I said earlier, she, the same routine. She gets out of her eyes open. She gets out of bed. She puts her bed up in the wall. She unfrosts her window um, and she gets ready for work and she gets another call. So after this guy already attacked her, he's called multiple times um, and he calls her again and and he Basically, wasn't telling her her warranty on her car was up. So I was appreciative no, of the call. No, nor was he trying to ask to buy her apartment. Um, so, you know, uh, what he was doing instead was trying to convince her that she, the stories that she writes, so we find out that she is a game designer and she writes non-playable characters in video games. And he claims that the story that she wrote is his life, that everything that she wrote in happened to him in real life or was him. And that um, it's like her story has come to life. He is the character and she, and he asks her, um, how did you write my ending? What was my ending? And as she is, she's walked out of her apartment by this time and she's out in the courtyard in front of her apartment and she is realizing kind of what's happening. And she knows that in this story, he kills himself at the end And so she looks up and sees him on the top of a building and he has the phone to his ear. And what he says is, is this up to me or did you write this too? And falls off or jumps off the building in front of her. I, you know, it's interesting. I've been trying to really pinpoint like where Tina Loris is in this world. Like, what is she doing? I don't know. I want to say like, is she like in some like cycle that she can't control and, you know, her boss is like a little too weirded out. Like her boss is a little too weird. Um, and we kind of keep getting snippets about him in the next episode, but, or, or, you know, cause she doesn't die slash maybe dies in episode in the last season of season three. Um, and we were kind of left with this unknown and lots of questions to answer, but I wouldn't be surprised if like she was in some like West world world or like if the, if Delos was like keeping her hostage in there or she's becoming self-aware again in a way. And like Maya and all these people like know a little bit too much about her and Teddy never like fully like in spoiler alert we find out the at the end of the episode teddy is back um because he's the one that saves her but teddy never got out if you remember the earlier seasons yes he did he did so i had he he shot himself right in the penultimate episode of season two but this is one of the, the episodes i had to go back and watch because i wanted to remember what happened but at the end of season two the season finale of season two um Bernard shoots Dolores um, because he, you know, realizes what she's trying to do and that she's basically deleting everything and everyone, including the hosts who are trying to get to the Valley beyond. And he shoots her. And of course, what we know is that he rebuilt her and put the pearl of Dolores in 
Charlotte Hale, who became Haloris. And <laughs> so at the end, Haloris sends of this episode, um, season finale of season two, sends all of the data that Bernard stopped from being deleted, sent it all off site. So it's no longer it was no longer being housed at Westworld. It was being sent. And I guess what they said was somewhere where no one could reach it, which spoiler alert here, I'm pretty sure that's at the Hoover Dam. Um, but also she had taken, um, Dolores had taken the pearl out of Teddy after he shot himself. That's and right. at the very end, she had his pearl and uploaded him to um, the system so that what one of the last scenes of that season two finale, you see Teddy in the field where all of the other hosts who made it through were, were but he was there alone and he was just standing in the field looking around. So he did make it to the Valley Beyond. That's right. I apologize, listeners. That happened many pandemics and moons ago. This is what I'm saying. I had to go back and rewatch, otherwise I would not know what I'm talking about. This is why we have Kirsten on, um, because she remembers the things that we don't. Uh, Because I'm a a researcher. You're a researcher. That's right. You're also brilliant, but that that has nothing to do with this, I guess. But um, um, so... uh, we come back to the final scene um, with Caleb. Um, his daughter, Frankie, run, wanders outside to retrieve Bear Bear. Love the name. Um, and she dropped it out her window. Like, why is your whatever? More on that later. Um, and she meets a really creepy dude who asks to talk to her dad. And um, he all of a sudden pulls a weapon on them as he, Caleb, walks out um, to take out the trash. And he dives to protect her just as the man shoots. But before the intruder can harm them, Dun, dun, dun. Uh, Maeve just like stabs him with the katana that we all knew and loved from earlier seasons that she is this and then with traditional Maeve flair hello darling um, as she greets him I love this opening and this reconnection I mean within that simple sentence and within them looking at each other you got that seven that eight years connection like you see it right then and there they have really good chemistry I I actually didn't mind um you know, the Dolores-Caleb chemistry from last season, I think they did really well together. And so I wasn't sure how it would be with Maeve and Caleb, but they also have really good chemistry together. And so I'm excited to see what this is going to be. This is the team up we deserve. Yeah, it is is the the team team up up we deserve. deserve. Um, So Maeve says, um, those men were sent to you um, to kill you by William. Um, You're not safe anymore. And like, kind of like, presses play on like this action plan that they have to do that maybe that they plan for um, if this moment were to occur because they all seem to have went their separate ways. Um, I think, I feel like the show will explain maybe the ending of that war in a little way because I feel like it's a great backstory episode and this show loves to play with time in so many ways. Um, but uh, they are then out on the buddy duo comedy romp katana sword playing everything that it is that we need to start off the season they head to california to intercept williams men as they hunt their next victim um and then as we see then in the credits everyone's favorite host is back and is the one that saved uh uh, dolores christina tina loris um and he's also watching her from her window so we do have to talk to you about your peeping tom issues teddy a little bit because that's not okay um just a little bit though but we all love james marston so we'll forgive him and he's back end episode i mean they really throw a lot at you, but I feel like it's completely divorced from the previous, like it's its own segmented story. So I'm really happy with how it ended. 
Yeah, I think they did a really good job in telling what seemed to be different storylines that we know fit into the broader narrative somehow, even if we can't figure exactly, puzzle it out exactly yet. But I think they did a really good job telling it in a way that flowed. And I did really like how the camera kind of panned down to highlight James Marston's face as you kind of see. And I kind of figured that's who it was just because I... Yeah, I, nobody stays dead in Westworld. Like, <laughs> if you don't see the body, it's the common theme, right? Sometimes, even when you see the body, they don't stay dead, um, with the exception of some of the humans. But yeah, that's interesting. I mean, they come back. I'm like, wait, what? Huh? What? Um, so that's the end of episode one, listeners. Um, we're gonna quickly talk about our top three takeaways that we find from episode one. So my first one is like, welcome back, right? Like. I was so impressed with this episode. I kind of went back uh, throughout the last couple of months preparing for this, watching like episode openers. I love pilot episodes, season one episodes. I think that it's really like the make or break of the show. There's always that moment for me in a show that I'm watching that just like hooks me. Westworld was that like really early on. Like we all know, like we say, oh, you have to get to episode four, right? And then boom, you're in or some other show. But Westworld really ties, you know, tied me in from the very beginning. But Maeve to me is still the HBIC. I mean, and I say host betch in charge, right? Like she is incredible. Um, But there's this level of godliness to her that is just like, it plays out in a way that uh, is like this not malevolent but maybe benevolent god figure for me that she kind of oversees everything but she also too is a player in the story and doesn't have her own storyline in a way still and so I'm really interested by like this theological concept that we always try to ascribe to her because she was always trying to find her daughter then free her daughter but then she realized she had to free everyone and now she's like this savior concept and what that is and so um, but is very much still um, a victim of circumstance in in some ways even though she has these magical powers that she does what do you think um no i think i totally agree with what you said which maybe doesn't make for the most interesting of podcasting episodes but i will say that i think she the comparison to god i think is apt i just wouldn't put that comparison to like the god of the abrahamic traditions oh yeah like, definitely not right so, Although she but, is fairly vindictive since earlier seasons. So. Right. Well, yes, but even, I mean, but so are some of the gods in other traditions. I just mean that, like, there's a very particular conception of the monotheistic deity that I don't know matches up with her. Although, there, I mean, sure, parts of it. But I do see her as being, um, you know, like a, a god in one of the traditions that is not monotheistic and can see that her wielding of power and also sharing like there's so much that she shares with Caleb it doesn't it's not just her doing it all um and so yeah I see that there's divinity there for sure yeah and also now that I'm kind of breaking it down a little bit more she also represents this complete flip side of like an agnostic like atheistic read on this whole aspect right because like she goes through life many times right she's seen it all but she kind of knows is there an end to this like is because she saw people go through right but it was ultimately to their the valley beyond but what was the valley beyond right and we we don't know it but she chose in many ways 
a different path. And, you know, she sees people worshiping or thinking about these things. And I think she kind of scoffs at them a little bit, knowing that she knows a little bit more. I mean, I've always really appreciated that like real realness to her. Yeah. I think the journey of her character from season one, like the, the choice she makes at the end of season one to go back to Westworld after she's basically escaped. And it was, we find out she goes back because of her daughter and that I know is a trope that, well, for one on this podcast, Marcy has lambasted multiple times for good reason, but that even shifts and changes. So she does everything for her daughter, but in this season, like last season, it was her motivating factor for pairing up with um, Sirac was because he promised that he would be able to give Maeve access to her daughter in the Valley Beyond. But in this season, we see, I think, with time that she has kind of let that go in a way that has opened her up. And it's not that it hasn't formed who she is. It's still a part of who she is, but is definitely not the entirety of her character. Um, But it is interesting to see the kind of, I don't know if I would label it wistfulness with which she looks at, um, is it Frankie, the name of the little girl? Yeah. Um, And seeing that Caleb has the life that she really wanted in some ways, but knows at least at this point she can't have. So there is a little bit of that there, but she doesn't begrudge him that either. And I find that to be, again, evidence of her, as you said, she's got some very divine qualities. Um, so, yeah. What's your first takeaway? Um, so it, for me, it's about trying to figure out timelines, right? So I'm all about the mystery. What timeline are we in right now? I don't, we're in the worst timeline. The worst world. timeline. <laughs> um, but in terms of Tina Loris, I feel like, There is a part of me that was like, oh, did she make it to the Valley Beyond in some way? But I do think it's a simulated world. I just don't think it's that one. I don't think it's the the host heaven or whatever. But in her timeline, nobody mentions the war, right? So we know that no one's making reference to that the way they are in the timeline of Caleb and Maeve. And again, because Teddy is there and we know that he was uploaded um, that indicates something about how he can get there. And I do think like we're supposed to make that connection with the Hoover Dam acquisition, that that is the data that was sent off of Westworld is in the Hoover Dam. And so someone could have created um, an additional simulated world. And so in my mind, and here is my potential, I don't know if this is, I'm going to make a prediction Um, At the beginning of episode one, we see on the balcony of uh, Tina Loris that a picture of the maze, which was, again, from season one, people following the maze. And it was what Bernard had created in order for Dolores to gain consciousness. And reaching the center of the maze for Dolores meant that she had consciousness. And so we see that symbol at the beginning of this episode um, in relation to Dolores. So we also know that Bernard has the key he's the only one with the key to all the data um, because that's what Dolores left him with. And so it's possible that there is like, there's one possibility that says this is a world simulated world that Dolores or Tina Loris is in, in which it's a new maze in which she's having to find her way out by gaining consciousness in some way. Um, And I, 
I do think like there are hints that it's a simulated world. Like I'm, um, I don't know if you heard the dialogue the first time we see her walk to work, she's walking upstairs. There's three bros, um, walking down the stairs who are talking about, I caught that. Yeah. They're like, Oh, this place is insane. You know, I didn't imagine it would be like this. I know this other place, this other spot we got to go to, let's go. And they're talking about it as though it was an amusement park. And so I, she gives them kind of a quizzical look, but doesn't follow through on that. So I feel like that she's definitely in some kind of simulated world. I just haven't pieced together yet exactly what it is. Is it another maze for her? Is it, uh, as you potentially mentioned, like a way of punishing her or torturing her that Delos now is doing? I don't know. Do you have thoughts about what you think? Yeah, I think it's like he says something. I'm, I think William himself is trying to find back what she stole or what was stolen from him. And I feel like he might have gotten it or he knows Dolores is the culprit of many of those things and he hasn't captured her. I mean, he's out there after um, Maeve in many ways. So I feel like there is something to this. I don't know. That would, I'm, I'm really interested in hearing about this and I've been really closely looking at all the other people on in Dolores's like timeline to see if I recognize like similar hosts, right? Because we see Clementine in the second episode and we see other ones kind of starting to come back into play and Teddy being there is like a really good notion to be like, okay, well, there's something interesting because of how we last met Teddy. So how are they kind of queuing up? Like, did they do what you said and put his host brain and something else and recreate it? Or are they playing with a simulation? I think more will be unveiled in many ways. Yeah. So my second takeaway is I really love the humanity that is shown in Caleb. I think that while these hosts and these figures are larger than life, you have the Charlotte Hales, who's, you know, been one of my favorite characters um, in the whole series. Um, but also, you know, there, there's no comeuppance, right, for them. Like, you're dead, you're killed, you can kind of be recreated in a way. Um but with Caleb, like, that's the show, folks, right? I mean, I guess he can be, you know, all of the things we've seen and will see. But Caleb's face and his acting, um, and Aaron Paul is a great actor in many ways, like, he's really excelling here. And I think that when people originally saw him be cast, like, they're like, what? And I really think he's made this part of his own. And so um, these hosts and the people who control them and maybe love them are playing God. And he's trying to say, no, there's actual there's actual impacts to you playing God. And one of them I think is symbolically shown through the actions that happened to his daughter, right? And then it's the side view of like, well, actually his own views are screwing up his daughter too. And that can't just be code that's wiped away, right? This is a lived experience that he has to understand as well. Oh, Kirsten, you're on mute. All, all of the robots, we need Maeve. We needed Maeve to unmute me. Sorry about that. Um, one of the things I would say about the actor playing Caleb is I think there were a lot of people who thought, oh, he'll never be anything other than Jesse Pinkman. Like, right, like that's the role, the iconic role that he kind of became famous for. Um, although he went on to do what is the name of the show that was on Hulu um, about the cult where he was like, he escaped a cult. I watched that show too. And he was really great in that, but I do think he's playing 
he plays that very well. And like I said, the chemistry between him and Maeve and the ways in which they communicate even without dialogue is um, poignant and and says a lot. So I really, I, I agree with you that he is bringing a lot to that role and that it isn't just robots shooting, you know, robots versus humans. It's like there is, a, as you said, a real humanity in his performance. What's your second takeaway? Uh, well, we kind of covered a little bit of it already in talking about how Haloris got the um, data off of Westworld. Um, but I, my takeaway is a question. Uh, this is me. I'm just asking questions. My question is, what do we think the man in black slash William and Haloris want with that data? Um, I know that the man in black basically says to the the guys at the Hoover Dam, like, oh, I just want to leave it here. I don't want it touched. I just want it back. Um, but they clearly have plans, as we will see, as we were talking about season two, for basically enslaving humans. Like that was Haloris's plan. She basically is on this revenge against humans. They're terrible and horrible. Amen. I mean, yeah, totally. Um, but like they're planning to either kill them all or enslave them. So how do we think this data is going to play a role in it? Is it just about bringing back all the hosts to take over the world or is it using all of the data in other ways? I don't know. Do you have thoughts about how that will be used? I mean, the definition of augury and auguries, right? And I think I'm saying it right, um, you know, is a sign of what will happen in the future and omens. And I think this, this season and this show in general is full of that, right? And it's not just like an omen for omen sakes. Like you could easily say the flies represent some type of pestilence or, or like locusts in those ways, right? But I think when you look at the signs like Dolores with the maze, right? What is that omen? And what is that leading us to? It led to a lot of destruction in the earlier seasons, right? For a lot of people, you look at data, right? What is the omen that data presents? In season three, we saw that it was the culmination of what was going to happen to you in your life and how that's lived out. And so this show, I think, and this season is really setting up very specific omens for us to pay attention to, right? You have, you know, you have this Maeve and Caleb aspect, you have the Dolores storyline, and then you have the Man in Black storyline, the William storyline, right? And I think those three are the ones that were meant to follow most of the season and then how they all interact with each other with their sub characters. And I think they all represent some type of uh, futuristic aspect that we're, we need to pay attention to. Do you, do you agree? Yeah. I mean, clearly they're trying to set up the whole season with the first episode. And so everything is some kind of foreshadowing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, I just was trying to, yeah, I, I try to puzzle out the mysteries because that's it's interesting what how I they enjoy. Use, how they use data, you know, even now, like if you like the Westworld tweet on Westworld, like they'll tweet at you because they'll use your data to say a new episode's out. I've been noticing that a lot, right? So it's even how they, you know, manipulate the data here. Or even with season three, they were doing all those weird symbols and things that they would show us and the timeline. Remember when they said all these things were happening in the circle of the world? So yeah, it, it's it's definitely a lot. Um, my my final takeaway for this episode, and we're gonna get into the 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 
next episode, uh, because a lot happens there, is I've been noticing this thing in a lot of shows. If you watch the latest season of Stranger Things, and I think a lot of bad guys are being set up to be really scary without having to be scary, right? Like without having to do the traditional tropes of horror. And I think they're succeeding with the William character. They set him up to be like this really dark figure in season one and then misunderstood in season two and three in a way. Um, you know, he lost his wife because he was a bad husband and all of those things. But I'm, I, I like how they set up like this big bad evil that isn't like, oh, I can't watch the show at night, but like, it's a, it's a mind fuck. Do you, I, I, I don't know. I'm loving William this season again. Yeah. I, I do think that they have done really interesting things with the complexity of his character. I don't know that I would say he's particularly sympathetic, but as a villain, he's interesting. Like it's not a two note, you know, kind of thing. And I'm guessing for Ed Harris, the actor, it's pretty fun to be able to play multiple versions of yourself. I only think Ed Harris could play this role too. Like, I don't know other actors that he's just so good. Yeah. No, I, especially with the, the cowboy thing, but also believably being like a wealthy elite and a cow. I don't know. I don't know. Well, what's your final takeaway? Mine is a little bit like your first one, but it, for me, this felt like a reinvention of the show. I know that the show got a lot of flack last season. There were so many people who were like, what the actual F is happening in this season three? Like they couldn't follow the plot line uh, and it was all over the place. And I think the show actually lost a significant number of viewers too. And I've kind of did a I've done, sorry, I did. I have done a a little bit of looking at some of the reviews on just the first couple episodes and they're pretty unilaterally positive. And I think the show does feel like a reinvention. Like we left this Westworld and the Westworld massacre uprising kind of in the past. It was an event that was formative, but now we're actually telling a different kind of story. And it made me think of... Uh, what happened at the end of season one into season two of The Good Place, where everyone kind of thought The Good Place was doing this one thing. And then they kind of exploded that and reinvented the show in the next season and kept reinventing that show in order for, you know, interest uh, to, to be maintained. So I feel like this is a reinvention. And we're seeing, as you pointed out, people from like small characters, bit characters from other parts of Westworld coming back to play roles. So, you know, Colonel Brigham was one of the the colonels in season two um, fighting, I think, um, with Dolores. And he came back to, as was weaponized basically by Haloris and the man in black to go after Maeve. Um, but we'll see again in, in episode two, more of these characters Um, And on top of that, the plot feels very manageable, despite the fact that we have at least three timelines that we know of, even though the third hasn't really been touched on too much in this first episode. We know we have Caleb and Maeve who are in the same timeline. We have whatever is happening with Tina Loris. And then clearly Bernard is somewhere, which as of episode one, we don't know where. But I think there's at least three different timelines. And of course, the show loves to play with that. So, yeah. 
and tell us where they are at like the last episode and bring yes. it all back together. I completely agree with you. And I also think it's the problem with a lot of shows, network television and all these shows that are too smart. And if you haven't watched The Good Place, it's definitely that show, but it's so smart. It's manageable. It's good. It's everything. If there's so many great books also about the philosophy of The Good Place, if you really want to dive into the world, the philosophy that I know Kirsten and I have probably dabbled in and she does much more um, than I do. Um, but I also feel like they, in The Good Place, to to tie up this knot, we're like, okay, we don't know if we're getting a season two. Like, and so we're going to leave you with such a cliffhanger that it's just going to annoy the hell out of you for Netflix perpetual hell, you know? And, and I feel like with season three of Westworld, I do feel because of what you are saying, like they did not know if they were going to get another season for many of those reasons that you pointed out. And I think that that's where they were like, okay, we need a fresh perspective here. Right. And they could have left season three and that's where it would have been but um i think the show's too expensive and they probably took too much money into it to not have a kind of like a final season because it's too creatively beautiful and all of that but i i do i totally agree with you like it just feels like a brand new show yeah so that's episode one there's a lot and episode two definitely catches up and brings us right to another way so episode two is called well enough alone i say this statement multiple times a week I feel I'm like just leave well enough alone just don't touch it and I think that is a theme throughout a lot of this show like did you really have to do that like just leave it well enough alone and and I think what you see with some characters is the answer is like no we couldn't so we we see Clementine she's back we kind of talked about it a little bit a while ago but um she's living her best life in Mexico um and it's the liberated Clementine it's the kind of she survived this war and she's out there and like many of the hosts left in the first place when she gets home um she's attacked by the man uh William um and more on who he actually is later in this episode and he cuts her throat and <laughs> that's it um and uh <laughs> poor Clementine I mean that's like her Seriously. perpetual character I know I I actually really like the character but uh yeah it was like I was like, oh, she's in Mexico. Look at her yellow dress. It's so pretty. She's and so then... happy. <sighs> she's dead. She's dead. Um, but then we meet Maeve and Caleb. What should we call them? Maleb? Caleb? Like Maleb. Maleb? No, okay. Maleb is good. Okay. Um, yeah. And I think you're the one who said this before. This is the duo we've both been waiting for. Uh, and I meant like their chemistry is really, really good. So there's clearly a history there again I kind of like that they didn't talk about or show us what happened in the seven years between but clearly they have a history and they reference that history without using too many words so it's it doesn't feel like on the nose of dialogue for the viewer but you kind of get to see a little bit of the intimacy that they do have and it's unclear I think at this point what kind of intimacy that is but they do clearly appreciate the other and care for the other and I think um it'll be really interesting to see how the rest of the season unfolds with them kind of working um in a tag team but we also kind of see as they are in this opening part of episode two we're beginning to see a little bit of the plan from Holoris and the man in black yeah 
Yeah. And, you know, they go to this palatial California estate um, of Senator Ken Whitney, um, Jack Coleman and his wife, Anastasia, who is Saf- who's played by Saffron Burroughs. And I love Saffron Burroughs. Like, shout out if you ever listen to this podcast. I love you. Um, it's uh, quickly revealed uh, that they're actually hosts. I kind of knew that right away. I was like, mm, they're hosts. Did you? Yeah, I don't think there was really any question as you like once we kind of figure out in season three that Dolores's plan all along was to kind of replace certain people in season three with herself. It, it kind of is like the next step is to like Stepford wife, everyone. Yeah. I like go into like Ralph's now and I go host, 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 like host, like I'm like, who's a host, right? This show's really screwing with my mind. What we need are those glasses from the movie They Live. Did you ever see They Live? It's an old 80s movie with the wrestler Roddy, Rowdy, Roddy, sorry, my partner is telling me. Anyway, we love, I don't watch we love a good reference from the side. Yes. Uh, but in this movie, there's like an alien invasion. They live, right? but you can only see them when you put on these special glasses and it reveals who they are. So I feel like you're right. We just need special glasses to be able to see who all the hosts are. Yeah. I mean, truly. Um, and what we quickly learn is that yes, they're hosts, but they're kind of powered up hosts and Maeve could say seesaw motor functions and they did not. And then, uh, fight goes down and they're not as effective this season. So these are like newer models, but as usual, she's still the HBIC and, they Caleb gets his butt kicked a little bit Maeve you know takes a guy out eventually um can I I ask a question yeah I in my rewatch of this episode I saw both of them pull little clear pointy things out of them did you notice this I think so when that woman when the saffron burrows's character wasn't that just glass that she had in her ear was it maybe she did go through a window that's true, but then her husband, the host husband, was had pulled it out of his back, but it looked like it was the same shape and the same, maybe you're right, maybe it is, they were just pulling glass out of it, but it felt like we were supposed to notice it because the camera did a close-up on what the actual object was, but... Well, if I'm the only one who noticed it, then you heard it here, folks, and I've learned not to doubt Kirsten. So uh, we're, we're going to find out if she caught on right away. But uh, they all sit down. Um, the uh, Saffron Burroughs's host character is did, um, and Maeve says, "Show me what's going on," and she kind of has a, a into your into your mind moment. Uh, she uh, um, mind melds <laughs> with Ken Whitney's character and really shows him what's going on in the first place, and that's actually Charlotte. Um, and that there was um, a scene with William going there saying, "I funded your campaign, and I need you to vote a certain way," and the guy's like, "No," and then lo and behold they're like oh well we'll just replace you right and it's quite interesting because then you see who's walking in and you see it's charlotte and then uh (laughs) their whole plan kind of is out there in front of it and then Maeve comes back and she goes oh actually things are quite worse because she realizes charlotte's still in the game cue opening again i mean like this show is just like really revving you up for the opening like i'm so excited every time i start the show and it was a really long, cold open. It really was. And then you do see that they did leave um, Anastasia, the senator's wife, alive. 
but just like what we saw in the first episode with these weird flies and everything, um, she's not herself. And so they go to find her um, and she's with a dead horse. Um, it's surrounded by flies. She's in this really like fugue state and Caleb addresses her. She kind of doesn't really recognize it. Um, and they, you know, she tells them they're invited to an opening night and an old friend is anxious for a reunion, Don Giovanni, by the way. Um, but then uh, she tries to attack Caleb and Maeve kills her as an act of mercy and says, that's not human. And I've seen plenty of humans in my life, right? And so we start seeing this larger grand plan kind of being cued into the first time now with these flies. Um, but then we're, we're introduced to, and we have to say the full title because he says it, all the time. Deputy Assistant Attorney General for Counterterrorism, Jim Navarro. Who is this dude? He works at the Justice Department and apparently has some in inkling that some maybe not so good, some nefarious things are happening uh, related to, you know, the business dealings of um, William slash the man in black. Um, so he goes to the company and he is greeted by none other than Clementine, except it's not the Clementine we all know and love, but a reprogrammed version of Clementine. Um, he, of course, demands to speak to William, and she refuses to let him pass because he doesn't have an appointment, which, um, you know, we can kind of see in this world that corporations really have kind of grown in power and that the Justice Department and his, you know, measly title of Deputy Assistant Attorney General uh, doesn't for really, counterterrorism, right? For counterterrorism, does not grant him the access that he thinks it should, and so uh, it's really the corporations who are running things, basically, yeah. and are in this world, <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> um, but uh, so yes, uh, more on Mr. Navarro. Um, but then we go and we see uh, Tina Loris, Christina and Dolores, and she's replaying, she's like traumatized by this Peter's um, actions and attack from the premiere. She wakes up again. Um, we see her, she kind of touches the scar on her arm where he cut her. Um, and his words about the tower and how she ruined his life really haunt her. And Maya, her roommate, um, who's just fabulous and we all love Ariana DeBose um, and it was the only good thing about West Side Story, the remake, but never mind here nor there. Um, she reads Peter's obituary aloud to prove his life was like already ruined. She's like, dude, like you didn't ruin this dude's life. Like he was a flat out loser and informs Christina that the Hope Center for Mental Health was his charity of choice. Cause apparently in our obituaries, like we're giving money to charities now, or I don't know, there's some type of social good or welfare that happens now when people die. Um, and a startle Christina recognizes um, writing something like this and once and she rushes off to work. And it's very convenient that Maya um, had already had this obit on her phone. She's like, oh girl, like I'm, I'm watching you. Don't worry, like it's all here. She knows too much. She's like Alexa, right? She like she heard him heard Tina Loris talking, and it was just like it popped up automatically. Yeah, she's. I'm not going to say the word because there's too many around me at the moment, and we know what will happen. Um, but that scene ends, and then we're welcome back to William slash the Man in Black and Tiger Woods. Is he still canceled? Right? We've canceled Tiger Woods yes. still. Okay. Well, he's still canceled, but we're still making the reference because. I don't know golf, um, but ultimately Tiger Woods better watch out um, because, and more importantly, the vice president who meets up with uh, the man in black slash William 
um, at a golf course in some beautiful area. Um, it's just shooting holes in one, like just like just constantly shooting holes in one. And as their conversation kind of unravels, and if you watch enough TV, like I knew this dude was like done for. Like there's no way he's making this out alive. But the man in black and William are scary, as I kind of talked about a little bit in my one of my takeaways. Um, and then we, of course, see Clementine, his faithful assistant, servant, whatever, um, just take out two Secret Service agents after this long, ominous conversation of like, you better do what I say. We've got a lot of dirt on you. And the man in black's like, you don't tell me what to do. I control you. And then he sees um, that Clementine's killed the Secret Service agents, turns around, and the William just pops him off with a golf club and and what a way to go uh in so many ways yeah well i i did have to say that it made me chuckle looking at clementine's character just off in the distance like wiping the blood off of her hands after having killed the as she said the obvious service aid agents i feel like she scalped them already too like i feel like she's like oh we're 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 already there like we're gonna you know take care of this so it's done and so she definitely she's like oh i'm already like way ahead of you like it's totally fine she didn't break a nail and honestly that's a good manicure right that's what i'm saying yeah uh so after we all already knew the vice president was done for and uh they're replacing him with a host. I mean, if you didn't see that coming. Um, the next scene that we move to is um, Malib. No, is that what we said? Malib, right? Um, are going to the opera because the senator's wife um, was basically like, hey, your old friend wants a reunion. So go to the opera. And of course, they end up at uh, Disney Music Hall downtown LA, although that's not what it says, but that's where they were. Um, but it's empty. There's literally no one inside. So you know, maybe no one likes opera. Um, but if you have watched the show from the beginning, you probably kind of caught on to the callback, like so many callbacks already to season one. So this is kind of like a reboot, right, of a mystery unfolding. Um, they go down to the stage where a gramophone is playing and they raise the needle and that raising of the needle lowers them down into the floor below and from there, they make their way down a hallway and they end up in a speakeasy. And so uh, I still think the chemistry as they are in the speakeasy, it is unclear what has happened between season three and four between them. Um, I think we will probably see glimpses of that. They know each other's drink order fairly well. Yes, very well. Also, a shout a out to Sherry Sazerac. and a Sazerac. Shout out to Sazerac's. Um, I will Which you say, and I drank quite. Um, did, and on a conference trip to New Orleans, and I, I just still remember, talk about that trip. That trip was great, and you kept me like every time I turned around, you put a Sazerac in my hand that entire weekend. That That's we what not, friends do. It's true. That is how friends treat each other. So hats off to you. Hat thank tip, you. John. Hat thank tip. you for thank that. You. Thank you. Um, so as they are drinking. Of course, there's a big lurch, and they're actually on a train. The train takes off, um, and they're headed somewhere. And you, if you look out the window of the train, you kind of see Los Angeles in the distance. That went a lot faster than I thought it would. But maybe what a beautiful, did. what a beautiful way to have a train in Los Angeles. That I mean, like, talk about like what we don't have right now. 
Oh man, if only, if only Probably. I could get that that far out of downtown in that short amount of time. I know, I know. Um, but I love Maeve because I feel like she's just like in there. She's like, son of a fucking bitch. Like I feel like she's like, I should have known. Like I should have known. And yeah, and we sign, we we see them finally, and she says, I should have known when I finally set foot back on solid ground. All I found was the same old shit. Yeah. No, she, yeah, this is where I'm like, she's not, she's not uh, omniscient, right? She can't be the omniscient God, but yeah, she should have known. Yeah, she should have known. But uh, we're then back with everyone's favorite character, um, Deputy Assistant Attorney General for Counterterrorism, Jim Navarro. Um, And he's walking into his car um, in a dark underground parking structure. FYI, nothing good happens in a dark underground parking structure, especially in DC, which is, I'm guessing, where he is. Um, and he screams into his phone. He's pissed because the vice president has changed his mind all of a sudden. He's wondering who's pulling these strings, right? Um, this kind of like puppet master aspect. And he doesn't really have to wait long um, because lo and behold, we see Clementine again. Love, we stand, but we don't stand evil, Clementine. Um, and he gets zip tied around the throat by her. Um, and she goes, goes oh we have an we can make an appointment for you now like it's time and um she exits the car and then uh holoris charlotte uh tells him everything she like tells him well the hosts don't plan to replace all of them because that would be too obvious and but she does have plans for his kind and then she exits the car in this amazing way and then flies crawl into his eye and we're not i'm like i can't i'm done i can't with the flies no, I, yeah, it's very creepy to see it go into the eye for sure. And apparently, I don't know if you've watched the ap- after episode breakdown where they talk about the fact that it was actually real flies. Like when it's a big swarm of them, they'll CGI some of them, but like the flies that are actually on their face are real flies. And they have fly they, trainers. Yes, they have fly, like what are the fly I want whispers? That job. I don't know. I, you, I don't want that job. You I mean, let's just job. talk about like jobs. I'm like, okay, like, I guess like no flies were harmed in the making of this movie, sir. No, no flies were harmed. Definitely not. They freeze. Is there them. like a group out there that's like advocating for flies? Isn't that just PETA? I don't know. Do PETA? I don't know. Like, I'm now know. like, if you are listening to this podcast and you are a fly advocate, an FA, a FA, as we will call it, please email us at popculturetheologians at gmail.com. We would love to feature you on a one-on-one podcast interview with Kirsten and myself to talk about fly advocacy in the 21st century. Absolutely. And then we will write a paper about that. And we will publish it. Somebody wants to be a fly wrangler, right? Fly wrangler. Honestly, anything's possible. If you believe it, you can achieve it. I guess so. Uh, at any rate, after the fly crawls in, the deputy assistant attorney general for counterterrorism's eye, uh, we head back in the storyline to Tina Loris, where she is actually in one of the transit cars on her way to the Hope Center for Mental Health at her. The, the best Uber because no one's talking to you. Yes, no one's talking to you. And there's multiple seats. So there's lots of room in there. It's great. Uh she heads to the Center for Mental Health because she wrote about it and wants to see it. And she kind of 
calls up the archive of her writing and sees that she did write this character called Peter Myers. And the story that she wrote pretty accurately matches the character that she met who was calling her and then jumped off the roof. Um, So she kind of figures all this out and is trying to make sense of it. And in the process gets a call from her job. And of course, as we all love, uh, we are all being surveilled all the time. So because she called up the archives on her phone, her job saw that she was actually in New Jersey and not in New York. Um, Cause remember she lives right off the high line in New York city. Uh, and her job's like, Hey, you're not at work today. And she's like, Oh yeah, I'm not feeling well. And they're like, oh, are you sick? And she's like, eh, no, I just don't feel great. I was tired. And eventually it comes out because they tell her, hey, you're on your way to Jersey. I mean, I wouldn't feel see. good in Jersey. Nobody does. Um, yeah, that she's like, oh, I guess you, you're, you're tracking me. Sorry, I'm not at work today. I'm playing hooky because reasons. Um, and so she hangs up the phone. She arrives at the center and she walks in and sees it's basically deserted. Like there's leaves on the floor. There's no one at a front desk or anything. And when she walks up to what would be a front desk, she sees construction plans and blueprints. And what's really interesting is that she is standing there and there is a group of like architects that kind of come down the stairs into the room next to hers. And she whispers to herself, just leave. And they do. They do leave. Yeah. So note that's a point that we should remember and she kind of walks around tries to figure out what's what the place is like and um she notices that there is a wing dedicated to peter myers already for a building that is defunct and he just died like a few days ago so she calls her roommate maya that's a great contractor right like the dot you die and that was a really great execution of the will uh in my experience that kind of stuff takes a long time but that was like a day's turnaround that they already built a wing and got the money um so she's kind of freaked out about that and calls her roommate who you know reassures her tells her she's not insane and tells her chrissy just trust yourself just trust yourself so again question marks here about maya who maya is um and of course maya who was dressed in white earlier is now dressed in all black that we see on the other side of the phone. So, you know, maybe something to see there. Uh, I believe Tina Laura sees something in one of the rooms that scares her. It was images hand-drawn of towers, Um, but she just kind of panics and leaves. And that's where we leave that. Yeah, and also the fashion in the show is just always fabulous. Like everyone looks amazing. Dolores's coats, her outfits, like I I wish I had that type of time to get ready in the morning. I don't. Um, And so I just want to say shout out to the fashion, but where then we come back to Maeve and Caleb and they're greeted by Sophia, uh, Lily Simmons, the same host who played the new Clementine in the brothel way back in season one to go back to your point of we're seeing people that come back in a way. I really love seeing her. She was, it was like a nice kind of like shoot back to what we were experiencing and you see Maeve kind of screwing with the technology because they're not really supposed to be there um but they're going to be there and they're going to embark on this adventure and you see her hit on Caleb and he's like kind of 
looking at Maeve and then she goes, he's capable of putting his pants on and off by himself. She's a little territorial. Um, and you see what the adventure they have in store for them. Cause they're going to go forth and they're going to do it because clearly this is being led them down this path for a reason, but they decline um, either a white hat or a black hat. And so, you know, they're right in the middle, which is exactly where they were really always supposed to be. But now we finally, after this moment, really start seeing a lot and we meet the real big bad villain. Yeah. So basically in the Apple store basement, um, cause it's all bright white and Halorus wears a lot of all white actually. She, she, I don't see her frequently wearing black. She's usually wearing white. And it always has like a cute bow around the waist or it's got like this beautiful fold, like, and also yeah. Tessa Thompson. I mean, she's gorgeous. Lo- gorgeous. We love if you haven't seen Thor Love and Thunder, they did her dirty in that movie. Like oh, definitely did her dirty. Yeah, let's talk about actual LGBTQ representation in a film that's not a joke, but maybe we'll go from there later. But Tessa Thompson, we stand you like you're everything. Come on the show. Yes. Um, so Haloris opens this pod and ta-da, it's actually the human William that has been kept alive and in kind of a stasis um, for the seven or eight years that have passed between season three and season four. And he, you know, he said, he used to say winning doesn't mean anything unless there's a loser. So she tells them that's why she, he's there. He's there to be the loser and she's going to control his world just like he and the other humans did in Westworld to her and to the other hosts. And after bringing him, uh, face to face, the real, like the host in black or the, man in black who's the host walks forward um very debonair like -like, by the way yeah looked you know a little bit younger ed helms is always sexy too yeah ed harris yes ed helms is sexy as well but ed harris is sexy yes agreed on both counts we love Um, the eds (laughs) yes we do um so they kind of have a face-to-face and it's very hard to read i think um William's facial expression. I mean, I think there is some surprise, but also this is a man who in the last season had his mind basically broke after he killed his daughter in season two because he thought she was a host. And so he's basically in, you know, from that point forward have been like questioning what is real, what is not was put in a mental institution. So it's kind of hard to see him being surprised at this, but there he is the, the two big bads. Um, and Haloris is basically like, I'm going to keep you alive, but I'm going to freeze you. So, you know, cryogenically, whatever. And so she puts him back into, as she says, a deep and dreamless sleep. Um, you know, that doesn't sound too bad given the hellscape we live in. I mean, are you buying what she's selling? I, if I could afford it. I mean, honestly, I think she would probably give it to us for, she'd be like, yeah, sure. Come on down. Um, but like, I, all I'm saying is sign me up charlotte yeah. like where's the gofundme because i'm happy yeah. to it doesn't participate. sound terrible to me it really doesn't like there's a dreamless sleep is great like just a dark dark sleep and honestly technically if you're sleeping like you you don't remember it right you kind of wake up yeah. when you wake up so i mean who knows any anyways now we finally know the the william the man in black that we've been seeing is a host this whole time um 
and I'm guessing a really upgraded host uh, from what we're kind of catching on to. Um, but we really find out who he was. And like all of us, I don't know if you watched the show, but he too is obsessed with The Gilded Age, um, a HBO show that deserves all of the acclaim. Um, but we see the ending of the episode and Maeve and Caleb are really finding out where they finally are. And there's a grand opening. They're taking us to another world in Westworld like they have in previous seasons. And lo and behold, he pulls a lever and he says, like all of you, we're here for the retelling of the Gilded Age, right? This, the golden age of America and where they are at that people want to go to. And it is the Dolores's, Dolores New Park, right? It's all there. Delos has back. They have a new park and it's this newest fantasy land that, you know, is out there for people to buy into, which we see early customers do with Mela being out there. And they kind of give this look of disbelief and saying, here we are again in a whole new world. And it's the roaring 20s, which has so many, you know, symbolic moments to where we are here now, where we are with like culturally with the with where we are at both pre and post-war and coming up on this real big systemic change in our country. But um, we always say we want to go back to the good old times. And if you're if you can afford it, you can. And once again, another adaptation finds its way back into the park and the season continues to unwind and they walk into the world and that's the end of the episode. And I point out, this is on American soil, right? That that's why they needed the vice president, but yep. it's no longer in you know offshore, but it's now on American soil. It's on American soil, somewhere in the desert, I'm guessing from what it looks like, but it's there. And so now this is happening not off in... I don't know, an island or wherever it was before. Yeah. So my first takeaway is super easy. This show is firing on all cylinders for me. I mean, it has really reinvented itself. And I'm just going to hit my second one too, is that Maeve and Caleb are carrying the story for me. I'm in the, like the Charlotte, Christina, whatever we're calling her now, Dolores, Christina, um, storyline. I really want to see where Bernard comes in here in a way because he's always, Jeffrey Wright's just an incredible actor. I miss Anthony Hopkins a little bit. I don't know why. I always loved his character. But those two things, like the show is really firing for me. And, you know, it's 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 really good. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I, um, I'll give the first two takeaways I have too because they're both pretty short. Um, this was maybe a takeaway from the first episode as well as the second one, but I do think it's funny that for someone who apparently liberated everyone from Rhea Bohm's control and arguably contributed to the beginning of the war, Caleb definitely seems to be have kept a pretty low profile in the world. Like in season three, we saw that he was, people were calling him sir and like following his orders and whatever. And then in season four, it's like, he's just Joe Schmo who works construction and nobody really recognizes him. And I think that's really interesting. Um, but it's just kind of a low profile. And the second uh, takeaway I have is that I think this golden age is going to be a pretty excellent way for Haloris and the man in black to continue stepfordizing um, whom they want to stepfordize. And also I'm pretty excited about the jazz music and the Sazeracs. I mean, Sazeracs aplenty um, and light on the absinthe for Caleb because he can't hold his liquor, which I mean, come on, just tell us that backstory, Um, you know, and I think the thing for me and my third takeaway is that at the height of the show, 
it really mixes this symbolic aspect of the theological, the godlike questions with this grand design mystery of like what the corporation means and how it controls that type of mystery and manifestation. Um, but it doesn't push you over the edge where it's preachy, right? It really makes you think. And I think the show, they don't want to answer every question for you. They want to, they obviously as a viewer, you want them to wrap up things, but they're like, no, like, where is the valley beyond? Like, you can actually think about that a little bit. Like, what does that actually mean, right? Or are we all just data being stored on a server forever when you think about that amazing um, Junipero Black Mirror episode, which is still something I go back and watch all the time because it's so good. Um, But the scenery is incredible in the show, but really the show is so good when it makes you think and it makes you need to tune in the next week to really push. And for those of you that are listening in the future or the past or whatever timeline will find yourself in, um, the third episode is out. We're recording one and two, but it took everything in me to not start watching the third episode because I still want to have this little bit of a mystery for me. And it looks by your face, maybe you've watched the third episode. Only because you pushed back the time of this podcast. And so I started watching, I haven't finished the episode yet. But it did confirm some things for me. And I, I all of the stuff that I have talked about in this podcast um, thus far were all things I thought before watching that. So none of this is based on viewing the part of the episode that I've seen. Um, I unfortunately wrote more than three takeaways for this. So I'm going to try to We love be, you for this. No, we love it because you're the brilliant one. Them. Well, no, I just have a lot of words. I don't always use them correctly. Um, a really brief side note on Clementine while Maeve is kind of my favorite character on the show, I really, really like Clementine as one of the, um, not the primary, one of the primary characters. And I really appreciated that they had her pick up a sunflower from the market. I don't know if you noticed that's the flower she picked. And of course that symbolizes faithfulness and devotion. And she had others in that vase that she puts it in. So she's, she is a character who is faithful and really tried to stay faithful to Maeve even as she's being threatened by um, the man in black. But ultimately we see, of course, she's killed and repurposed, reprogrammed. Um, And I am hopeful that in coming episodes, she's going to be liberated again, Um, that she doesn't stay sort of the. She deserves better justice for Clementine. She does deserve better. Um, One of the other takeaways I had, I've actually kind of already mentioned about what timeline Tina Loris is in and what world that is. Is it a simulation? Is it another Westworld-like world? I kind of think, and I don't know for sure, but I would think you're right that it's probably a simulation, John. And I would think it's kind of like a virtual reality Westworld. So whereas Westworld was like the fully immersive physical experience, there is a possibility to do a virtual reality version of that. And I kind of think that might be where she's at. And again, I made reference earlier um, in episode two to this idea that she actually is able to write the story she's in. So she is writing her story. So like when she says, just leave to the architects she sees in the next room at the mental institution, they actually do. And it would explain, you know, the Peter Myers character and some other things. So I do think she is exercising some sort of control. The question is, what kind and who is the architect of that story? If it's 
like along with her? Is it her and Bernard? Is it, um, you know, Haloris and the man in black? I don't know. I love that she writes minor characters too. Like there's a simple poetry and elegance to that. Like where she writes the characters that no one pays attention to, but actually have a lot of importance to the story. Like just like she did. Yes. And gives them a backstory that is thoughtful and meaningful. And respectful. Yeah. Like that's, yeah. that's who she is. And so, yeah, it's, it's, inter- yeah, it's very interesting. Yeah. So the last takeaway I have, and I'm just going to apologize in advance um, for this, John, but I feel like this is why you bring me on the show. This is, um, this is listeners, just so you're aware. So <laughs> I'm going to give you this quote from Marx. Uh, Mark says, it is not the consciousness of men that determines their existence, but their social existence that determines their consciousness. So essentially, to explain this, basically, Marx was a materialist, meaning everything is physical, like all the stuff in the world, all the forces that determine society, everything is a physical thing. So when he's talking about social existence, what he's talking about is the material conditions of people's reality. So it's like the, the house that you live in, the food that you were able to eat, the relationships with people you have around you, even your own um, mind and personality, all of that is rooted in matter. It's rooted in your brain, in your body. Um, so for him, the idea that it's not the consciousness of men that determines their existence, but their social existence that determines their consciousness basically means it's not that consciousness is driving history. So it's not that the collection of events and actions, et cetera, um, whether recorded or not, that's what we mean by history. It's not that that is being driven by like people's ideology, like they're making choices, whatever. It's the unfolding of history on our physical bodies that creates our consciousness. It's what gives us our awareness of the world and our perspective on it is the material conditions around us. Um, And this is, of course, I would argue evidence of why if you are someone who um, lives in a particular kind of body that doesn't experience certain kinds of oppression, you may not see it. But if you are someone who lives in a different kind of body who does experience that kind of oppression, you will see it because your material conditions create your consciousness. So all of this to say, um, although Dolores Prime cloned her pearl and installed it in different host bodies in season three, we see that those different Doloreses go through different events and things happen. They have different experiences that end up creating their consciousness and perspective on things. And I think this kind of explains why Dolores can deviate from the plan that Dolores created so drastically. And in this episode, episode two, I think the political subtext is that the driver of policy and law is not ideological. It's not about, you know, democracy and well-reasoned arguments winning the day. It's material. It's who has the most money and power. And those things, of course, go together. Um, And I think this dances around the question the show has been asking from the very beginning, which is, is freedom possible? So if you can afford it. Right, right. Which is why the first episode's opening line is so important. It is. And so I think if season two was Dolores's host revolution and season three was Dolores's plebeian, you know, human revolution, I'm really interested to see what kind of revolution this season's going to bring. Viva la revolution. Uh, I butchered, I butchered the French. Uh, um, But uh, it's just so amazing because 
you you hit on these points where it is about commodities it's about materials it's about physical touch this idea that you can have all of this even if you were not born into this world right when you when they went to japan and the samurai world uh, in season two which had a really weird storyline but never mind um or west world people want to go back to the wild wild west or this roaring 20s where actually everyone tried to like commodify themselves because that's how you gained wealth i mean I, I, we haven't even broken into the great Gatsby references that the roaring twenties are going to bring out the bonus along with the, the haircuts and the flapper dresses and everything like that. But you're, you're completely right. It's that at the height of the show. And I think at the crux of the show, it's that if you want freedom, you can, you can achieve it if you want to buy it. And freedom is defined in a, something that I think is both a commodity and something that people want to achieve and strive to, but might not a, obtain the plebeians, as you call it, you know, can't go to Westworld. So can they ever truly be free, right? But then the hosts tried, and now they are, to go to the real world and leave Westworld. So how do you define freedom? But now they're all intersecting with like this run, like thunderous applause from each side, like just cheering on like this, this revolution that is, is coming. I don't know if, I don't know what it looks like though yet. Yeah, I don't either. I just go back to the line that Dolores gave in season three, where she's like, I used to think that free will didn't exist, but she's like, now I think it does exist. It's just really, really hard. And I think to be free to, to do a, an act that is free is in this world, both our, like our world here, but also the West world world. It's really, really hard. Free will is so hard. I mean, you think about it even now, right? I mean, look at the stuff that we go through that we went through during this continuing on during this pandemic you know you telling someone is simple enough to wear a mask right when they have their quote-unquote right to not wear one right but you know nevertheless women's bodily autonomy um neither here nor there but you talk about vaccines talk about free will in any way shape or form you know is it better to just kind of go through life knowing where you're going to go because it's already pre-written or what does free will transcribe onto your ultimate freedom of self and knowing that like if you knew you're never going to get covid does it matter if you never got the vaccine or wore a mask i don't know these are these questions that i think we're asking and like with the case of westworld because although we did catch williams say they made it through a pandemic so i want to feel like they did have some sort of response to it in a very specific way for all of us that watch the show too closely for these omens, these symbols. Um, it, it is leading us to, I think, this question of free will. That's what this show's always really been about, is you, you want free will, but when you have it, is it worth it in the end? Yeah, and how do you get it when it seems obvious and then the ways in which you realize like all of your data is being held in on Chinese servers because TikTok has, you know, all of anyway. <coughs> so I still watch the just, TikTok though. We still oh, watch Oh, me TikTok. too. I, me too. Cause I think it's, which company do you want to have it? They all have your data anyway. Um, and yeah. So like there, there's a way in which so much of your behavior can be predicted because we are not only creatures of habit, but I mean, we, our physical bodies have, their own predispositions to liking and disliking things and 
we have personalities and brain chemistries and hormones and whatever. And it doesn't mean that we are completely determined. It just means like Dolores says, free will is really, really hard. Well, one thing we know for sure is that we will be determined to watch episode three. I might probably watch it tonight now, but um, all I will say is that we're going to leave you here. Uh, Episodes one and two, Kirsten, pop culture theologian, goddess to the stars, all of the things. Uh, Thank you for joining us again. And we're definitely going to have you back on this season because there's, we have to talk about. Yes. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to come back anytime. Well, uh, pop culture theologians, that's it for this episode. Tune in. Uh, We're going to be releasing episode three. Uh, Marcy will be back. She had an amazing Alaskan cruise that she couldn't reschedule to podcast, but nevertheless, she'll be here. And we've got a lot to talk about because I think she said she doesn't like the season. So we're going to be at some fights and some odds. But I have a feeling once Marcy listens to this, she'll change her tune. That's right, Marcy. We're talking about you, but we'll be talking more next time. We'll see you soon. Bye.